When, however, Vespasian had restored to unity Britain as well as the rest of the world, in the presence of great generals and renowned armies, the enemy's hopes were crushed. They were at once panic-stricken by the attack of Petilius Cerealis on the state of Brigantes, said to be the most prosperous in the entire province. There were many battles, some by no means bloodless, and his conquests, or at least his wars, embraced a large part of the territory of the Brigantes. Indeed, he would have altogether thrown into the shade the activity and renown of any other successor. But Julius Frontinus was equal to the burden, a great man as far as greatness was then possible, who subdued by his arms the powerful and warlike tribe of the Silures, surmounting the difficulties of the country as well as the valour of the enemy. Such was the state of Britain, and such were the vicissitudes of the war which Agricola found on his crossing over about midsummer. Our soldiers made it a pretext for carelessness, as if all fighting was over, and the enemy were biding their time. The Ordovikis, shortly before Agricola's arrival, had destroyed nearly the whole of a squadron of allied cavalry quartered in their territory. Such a beginning raised the hopes of the country, and all who wished for war approved the precedent, and anxiously watched the temper of the new governor. Meanwhile, Agricola, though summer was passed and the detachments were scattered throughout the province, though the soldiers' confident anticipation of inaction for that year would be a source of delay and difficulty in beginning a campaign, and most advisers thought it best simply to watch all weak points, resolved to face the peril. He collected a force of veterans and a small body of auxiliaries. Then, as the Ordovikis would not venture to descend into the plain, he put himself in front of the ranks to inspire all with the same courage against a common danger, and led his troops up a hill. The tribe was all but exterminated. Well aware that he must follow up the prestige of his arms, and that in proportion to his first success would be the terror of the other tribes, he formed the design of subjugating the island of Mona, from the occupation of which Paulinus had been recalled, as I have already related, by the rebellion of the entire province. But as his plans were not matured, he had no fleet. The skill and resolution of the general accomplished the passage. With some picked men of the auxiliaries, disencumbered of all baggage, who knew the shallows, and had that national experience in swimming which enables the Britons to take care not only of themselves, but of their arms and horses, he delivered so unexpected an attack that the astonished enemy, who were looking for a fleet, a naval armament, and an assault by sea, thought that to such assailants nothing could be formidable or invincible. And so, peace having been sued for, and the island given up, Agricola became great and famous as one who, when entering on his province, a time which others spend in vain display and a round of ceremonies, chose rather toil and danger. Nor did he use his success for self-glorification, or apply the name of campaigns and victories to the repression of a conquered people. He did not even describe his achievements in a laureled letter. Yet, by thus disguising his renown, 
he really increased it, for man inferred the grandeur of his aspirations from his silence about services so great. Next, with thorough insight into the feelings of his province, and taught also by the experience of others that little is gained by conquest if followed by oppression, he determined to root out the causes of war. Beginning first with himself and his dependents, he kept his household under restraint, a thing as hard to many as ruling a province. He transacted no public business through freedmen or slaves. No private leanings, no recommendations or entreaties of friends moved him in the selection of centurions and soldiers, but it was ever the best man whom he thought most trustworthy. He knew everything, but did not always act on his knowledge. Germany and its Tribes by Cornelius Tacitus Translated from the Latin by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Broadrib. Germany is separated from the Galli, the Riti, and Pannoni by the rivers Rhine and Danube. Mountain ranges, or the fear which each feels for the other, divided from the Sarmati and Daisy. Elsewhere, ocean girds it embracing broad peninsulas and islands of unexplored extent, where certain tribes and kingdoms are newly known to us, revealed by war. The Rhine springs from a precipitous and inaccessible height of the Rhetian Alps, bends slightly westward, and mingles with the northern ocean. The Danube pours down from the gradual and gently rising slope of Mount Obnoba and visits many nations to force its way at last through six channels into the Pontus. A seventh mouth is lost in marshes. The Germans themselves I should regard as aboriginal and not mixed at all with other races through immigration or intercourse. For in former times it was not by land, but on shipboard, that those who sought to immigrate would arrive. And the boundless and, so to speak, hostile ocean beyond us is seldom entered by a sail from our world. And besides the perils of rough and unknown seas, who would leave Asia or Africa or Italy for Germany with its wild country, its inclement skies, its sullen manners and aspect, unless indeed it were his home? In their ancient songs, their only way of remembering or recording the past, they celebrate an earth-born god, Tuisco, and his son Manus, as the origin of their race, as their founders. To Manus they assign three sons, from whose names, they say, the coast tribes are called Ingivones, those of the interior Herminones, all the rest Istivones. Some, with the freedom of conjecture permitted by antiquity, assert that the god had several descendants, and the nation several appellations, as Marsi, Gambrivi, Suevi, Vandili, and that these are genuine old names. The name Germany, on the other hand, they say is modern and newly introduced from the fact that the tribes which first crossed the Rhine and drove out the Gauls, and are now called Tungrians, were then called Germans. 
Thus, what was the name of a tribe and not of a race gradually prevailed, till all called themselves by this self-invented name of Germans, which the conquerors had first employed to inspire terror. They say that Hercules, too, once visited them, and when going into battle, they sing of him first of all heroes. They have also those songs of theirs by the recital of which, Baritus, they call it, they rouse their courage, while from the note they augur the result of the approaching conflict. For as their line shouts, they inspire or feel alarm. It is not so much an articulate sound as a general cry of valour. They aim chiefly at a harsh note and a confused roar, putting their shields to their mouth, so that by reverberation it may swell into a fuller and deeper sound. Ulysses, too, is believed by some in his long legendary wanderings to have found his way into this ocean, and, having visited German soil, to have founded and named the town of Asciburgium, which stands on the bank of the Rhine, and is to this day inhabited. They even say that an altar dedicated to Ulysses, with the addition of the name of his father, Laertes, was formerly discovered on this same spot, and that certain monuments and tombs with Greek inscriptions still exist on the borders of Germany and Rhetia. These statements I have no intention of sustaining by proofs, or of refuting. Everyone may believe or disbelieve them as he feels inclined." For my own part, I agree with those who think that the tribes of Germany are free from all taint of intermarriages with foreign nations, and that they appear as a distinct, unmixed race, like none but themselves. Hence, too, the same physical peculiarities throughout so vast a I will frankly admit to you that I can hardly keep from laughing at some of the ancients, and from falling asleep at others. I do not single out any of the common herd as Canusius or Arius, or others in the same sick room, so to say, who are content with mere skin and bones. Even Calvus, although he has left, I think, one and twenty volumes, scarcely satisfies me in one or two short speeches. The rest of the world, I see, does not differ from my opinion about him, for how few read his speeches against Asitius or Drusus. Certainly his impeachment of Vitinius, as it is entitled, is in the hands of students, especially the second of the orations. This, indeed, has a finish about the phrases and the periods, and suits the ear of the critic, whence you may infer that even Calvus understood what a better style is, but that he lacked genius and power, rather than the will to speak with more dignity and grace. What again from the speeches of Caelius do we admire? Why, we like of these the whole, or at least part, in which we recognize the polish and elevation of our own day. But as for those mean expressions, those gaps in the structure of the sentences, and uncouth sentiments, they savor of antiquity. No one, I suppose, is so thoroughly antique as to praise Caelius simply on the side of his antiqueness. We may, indeed, make allowance for Gaius Julius Caesar, on account of his vast schemes and many occupations, 
for having achieved less in eloquence than his divine genius demanded from him, and leave him, indeed, just as we leave Brutus to his philosophy. Undoubtedly, in his speeches, he fell short of his reputation, even by the admission of his admirers. I hardly suppose that any one reads Caesar's speech for Decius the Samnite, nor that of Brutus for King Deiotarus, or other works equally dull and cold, unless it is someone who admires their poems. For they did write poems, and sent them to libraries, with no better success than Cicero, but with better luck, because fewer people know that they wrote them. Asenius, too, though born in a time nearer our own, seems to have studied with the Meneni and Api. At any rate, he imitated Pacuvius and Archias not only in his tragedies, but also in his speeches. He is so harsh and dry. A style like the human body is then specially beautiful when, so to say, the veins are not prominent, and the bones cannot be counted. But when a healthy and sound blood fills the limbs and shows itself in the muscles and the very sinews become beautiful under a ruddy glow and graceful outline. I will not attack Corvinus, for it was not indeed his own fault that he did not exhibit the luxuriance and brightness of our own day. Rather let us note how far the vigour of his intellect or of his imagination satisfied his critical faculty. I come now to Cicero. He had the same battle with his contemporaries which I have with you. They admired the ancients. He preferred the eloquence of his own time. It was in taste more than anything else that he was superior to the orators of that age. In fact, he was the first who gave a finish to oratory, the first who applied a principle of selection to words and art to composition. He tried his skill at beautiful passages, and invented certain arrangements of the sentence, at least in those speeches which he composed when old and near the close of life, that is, when he had made more progress, and had learnt by practice and by many a trial what was the best style of speaking. As for his early speeches, they are not free from the faults of antiquity. He is tedious in his introductions, lengthy in his narrations, careless about digressions. He is slow to rouse himself and seldom warms to his subject, and only an idea here and there is brought to a fitting and a brilliant close. There is nothing which you can pick out or quote, and the style is like a rough building, the wall of which indeed is strong and lasting, but not particularly polished and bright.' 